0: Welcome to the 80th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Bernard Duesendorf. I'm Chuck Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We're here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about immutable infrastructure, again. About a year ago, we had a conversation about immutable infrastructure, episode 62. And we were talking kind of about, in broad strokes, the The prevalence of this this idea of immutable infrastructure and how it applies to operations work, but a lot's changed in the last year, at least as far as I can tell and I wanted to dig back into this a little bit and revisit some of the some of the points of it and If our dear listeners haven't taken the plunge into immutable or they're on the fence about certain parts of it, I wanted to caution them with a couple of things but also encourage them
1: so I think one of our conclusions last time around was. To sit down and think and plan out your infrastructure, just kind of slapping around immutable infrastructure and calling it done doesn't mean you won't have problems if you don't take some time to actually think and plan out your infrastructure. And that's definitely not changed.
2: Absolutely. And I I think something that you you guys pointed to last time as well is that everything in your infrastructure cannot be immutable, like state.
1: Gasp. Data. Well, one of the
0: interesting things is when we were doing the research for the last episode – there was a lot of consternation about running stateful services like databases or metric systems or logging platforms or anything really that had state inside of an immutable infrastructure. And there were a number of patterns that people had suggested. Um, Some of them were terrible at scale, things like the, the single instance auto scaling or single instance managed instance group pattern where you have an auto scaling group of one instance that's designed to bring that one instance up and you have mapped to an EBS or a, a GCS volume that you can then attach to the image when it comes up, or the things that comes up, and you can kind of get state. But if you're managing literally hundreds
1: or thousands of these, it's terrible real fast.
0: You you really I definitely
1: f- read some blogs that that were basically of the opinion, even if you've got stateful databases, if you're not tr- not Running them as immutable infrastructure in something like Kubernetes, then you're not trying hard enough
0: and yeah and I'll throw a link to one of the the posts i fa- I found about doing the single ins- the single instance group auto scaling group kind of things into our into the show notes and it's it's an interesting pattern if you're a really small shop and you've only got one managed thing that is stateful and everything else is either cloud hosted or whatever i could I could see an argument to say okay. We really should have our deployment tool be a single deployment tool, and we're going to move everything into it. And this isn't ideal for that one service you're running, but we'll make it work. But the other thing that's happened since we last recorded, that I, and th- this is more of what I wanted to talk about today, is that the Kubernetes idea of a stateful set seems to have gotten enough traction to be deployed fairly widely. And Kubernetes, as much as we've been talking about it, really has won. If you're doing container orchestration in any any scale at all, you're probably using Kubernetes.
1: Well, every it's interesting watching all of the major uh, cloud platform providers, all of them support Kubernetes to the point where I know GCP, if not others, are literally supporting being able to manage your local Kubernetes bare metal infrastructure in the Google APIs.
2: Exactly. That that's what I was going to say. Is it's just amazing to see uh, every cloud platform provider, uh, big and small. I mean, you've got uh, DigitalOcean, um, and of course the majors, AWS, GCP, Azure. They all have something for Kubernetes. And as you mentioned, um, GCP supports on prem as well as I believe I haven't read the announcements from uh, Reinvent yet, but I know that they're allowing now local stuff to be ran, ran, or things to be ran in your data center, I would imagine they're going to extend EKS to that as well.
1: The model really reminds me of sort of old-school Unix. You had all these proprietary Unixes, all these proprietary cloud platforms, and as work emerges, Linux emerged out of Unixes and kind of won the battle. Kubernetes, the open-source cloud orchestration Doohiki has really emerged from all of the uh, platforms that we know and love all of those proprietary platforms as sort of the common standard that everyone speaks and codes against
0: and if you really don't want to run a cloud enabled whatever um you what you're looking for a somebody you can pay money to to run kubernetes inside your infrastructure like Red Hat's OpenStack is now effectively Kubernetes in a box. So you can very easily deploy Kubernetes to your internal set. If, if you have a data center, if you have whatever it is, you can do it. And yeah, it's it's got the mindshare now. Everybody's developing for it. Everybody's working forward on it. And the stateful sets have gotten really, really powerful and well-supported. And stateful sets are essentially the same thing as the single instance group with a, an attached EBS volume, except it's you have persistent disks that's attached to your pod. And so as long as the pod is scheduled correctly and your controller knows about where the pod is landing and the other pieces, it provides those disks to the instances and you're off to the races. So like it, it's at the point that Elastic has documentation for running the Elastic Cloud services stuff Inside of Kubernetes stateful sets, and they link it on their documentation, and this is a production-supported implementation of it. This, they're not kidding around.
1: Yikes! Talk about something that needs fast, low-latency access to its disks and high performance.
0: Yeah, and it's a supported configuration now. So, to me, that really says that unless you have a really massive data footprint, if you're if you're building new you should take a really, really hard look at stateful sets in Kubernetes. And if you can, if it, if it helps your environment, you should embrace the the idea of immutable infrastructure. Now, I'm not saying that all of immutable is good. I'm just saying that it's a lot closer to real and usable than it was 12 or 18 months ago.
2: And with the added benefit of, of Docker, it really helps to ensure the old it worked on my laptop, actually will work in production because developers can run their Docker containers locally, push it to a Kubernetes cluster in testing or dev or wherever, and then also, again, launch it in prod, and this is all handled through some CI, CD pipeline, hopefully, preferably, and it just works. I think it's good in most, if not almost all
1: cases. My particular issue with immutable infrastructure is that I usually get assigned the more challenging aspects of one's infrastructure, something that requires high-performance, low-latency access to its disk, for example, and other things that are are not the standard applications that you're shipping. Um, it's why we get paid the big bucks, right, Jared? And <laughs> those are the those are the corner cases and the situations that. These container orchestration tools, job orchestration tools, have really struggled to be able to support well. And the the silver lining is that Kubernetes support is really maturing well for for dealing with those kinds of services. And once we get past that hump, clearly being able to ship, you know, a stateful app, web app. In a CI/CD pipeline through Kubernetes, is going to be well tested and in, in rock solid when we can do high latency or uh, high performance, high low latency logs, metrics, and databasing applications on top of Kubernetes and have it work well.
0: So I want to touch on something that you just said. Just because, oh, you, well, just because you have the stateful deployment methodology and you have a CI/CD pipeline, state. Um, immutable infrastructure does not magically make all of your problems go away. You still have the challenges of building repeatable builds and building things that you actually can deploy and you can test and you can security scan. It's not just somebody on their laptop has built a Docker image and pushed it because you don't know where the Docker image came from. So it it doesn't solve a bunch of the other problem spaces of using immutable infrastructure, but having the the stateful sets really does... It it opens up to a whole new category of apps that were not really well suited to this before,
2: right? Because like let's let's take a database for instance, and let's use like Postgres as an example, uh, where you have your uh, PG access file, um, where you're listing out connections and those kinds of things, or who can connect and uh, what databases they can connect to. That would be baked in into your image, but with the um, stateful sets, you would still be able to maintain state through the through the deployment process of that configuration get applied.
0: I also know that Jack has done some work in a in a past life in terms of building verifiable and kind of repeatable builds for RPMs and Debs and whatnot in terms of how do you build something that is signed and so you can many prove, years ago. But you can prove that you know exactly what's in it. And what changed. And who changed it and what the signature trace is and so you you know exactly what's going on and a lot of folks who run docker images really don't they don't look at the source images they don't look at what the docker file is including or what it's you know curl bashing to (laughs) to the image as it as it as the build runs and so you may build a docker container that works today but six months from now when you go to build another one it can't find some of those files because you were just here docking something off the internet and again think about how all these pieces fit together think about how do i build my docker containers when i don't have access to the internet have i made copies of things locally do i am i running a hub locally that i can put things into what are you doing to protect yourself against random code on the internet that is untrusted and unverifiable
2: yeah that's that's always been one of the the first things uh i did in a new place was build a rpm Uh, Well, most of the places I went to used CentOS. It was an RPM mirror. Um, Used up some space. It it would cause some issues, but then – or it was an initial setup. But then from there on out, uh, if there was issues with the Internet connectivity or or mirrors or whatever, you had a local place to go, and plus you had a local repository to put your own uh, packages in.
0: And you never had to to cry when the Internet was down and you were trying to deploy something or build a new thing or – Redhead had moved to a different version of whichever, and now you're, you're scrambling and trying to find the older versions of the package
2: or the fun when we're uh, a third party um, you know a, a maintainer uh, drops old versions of their packages when they upgrade new versions
0: or it's when somebody you know rage quits and left pads you and you know drops the <laughs> the packages out of the repo entirely, and now your application doesn't build because
1: oh wait. yeah it turns out you are cloning directly from github that old employee's uh uh, personal git repub uh, personal github and yeah perhaps
0: you shouldn't do that yeah the the, there are so many opportunities that the immutable infrastructure dangles in front of you that if you rush headlong towards it you're going to miss a lot of the operational aspects of what you need to be careful of and The ideal situation, as as far as I can tell, as far as I can divine from my experience and the people I talk to, is you want the Docker images to be built by your CI/CD pipeline, not built by a user on their laptop and pushed. And you want to be able to to verify and version and tag all the layers in that so you know exactly what went into it and where they came from and how to get them again if you need them. And you need a cache that is persistent enough to store the images that you care about so you have all the pieces in it.
2: Yes, and with Red Hat acquiring uh, CoreOS and along with it Quay, they have now released uh, the source behind Quay and a so that you can run a production-ready container registry pri- b- behind your environment, uh that fully supports you know, all the, the things you expect from a registry as well as uh, image scanning as well.
0: For as much crap as I give Red Hat for being kind of old and stodgy on some things, I really love their business model in terms of releasing back to the community so much stuff. So, yeah, give it a look. Something else in the notes here, um, Jared, you point out that just because it's immutable doesn't mean you can't SSH into it.
2: Yeah, I see that a lot where people will try to push the idea that or they try to conflate both immutable infrastructure along with this newer paradigm where uh they take cattle to the extreme and oh once we deploy something the only way we can get anything out of it is is through logs that are streamed to elk or wherever and while that may be a, a laudable goal or or some could debate whether that's that's good or not I really think it's important not to to feel like you have to go all the way there just to reach the benefits of immutable. Um, you know, you can still SSH into it. You can still uh, take a look around at the environment. The bigger Sometimes thing. Sometimes you
1: need some good debug access.
2: Exactly, and the the bigger thing with immutable, right, is that you you're trying to remove the the snowflake aspect of configuration management for your application or your uh, infrastructure. You're wanting that to be done earlier in a controlled or automated fashion. That doesn't mean that you still can't uh, instrument or uh, debug on those instances. It's a very
0: good point. We have uh, one of the things we use in terms of the ELK stack that we, we support is there's a whole bunch of custom scripts that we've written over the years. And those are now packaged up in a container along with all their dependencies and all their runtime needs. And that's deployed to an instance. And whenever we make changes, we roll a new version of the container, which we go through the the pipeline of the process, we push it out. And this way, there's never any drift about, oh, did did the copy of the script that I was working on to do the thing, did it get saved? No, because everything has to go through the appropriate process. But... We log into it all the time to go run commands against other things and to kind of inspect state and debug things. And we have all of our tools in there and all the other pieces. It doesn't mean that you can't log into it and bang around on it and use temporary space inside the container to do stuff. You just know that nothing, nothing on that container is ever going to survive a a reboot or, you know, a random kill. So don't use it as if it has any kind of long-term space. It is short-term scratch space while you're debugging something, and then the next time the container rolls out, you get a new one, and that's it.
1: Every single client I've worked with that's dealt with container orchestration and container deployment has had this discussion and found having SSH access to their nodes or be able to inspect their containers to be super highly critical to... The safety net of their business because you can't predict every single reason why you need to look at the exact state a container, an application, a Python script is in. But oddly enough, I find that Kubernetes really is kind of the exception to that, and what probably encourages others in this SSH less world, in that I almost feel comfortable enough with Kubernetes and the way it manages containers, the way I can inspect my logs and tail-f my logs with kubectl, that it actually is bringing me to the point of, no, the only reason I want to SSH into my Kubernetes worker node is when there's something wrong with the worker node. The application tells me everything it needs. So, I don't know, I've almost come full circle if the tools are good enough. And I'm starting to see that the tools are almost getting good enough.
0: Well, to that point, I used to log into the Elasticsearch client or master or data nodes frequently for various things, to look at stuff, to check on stuff, to inspect things. And over the last 18 months, we have moved the the pattern entirely to going to our utility node, the curator node, as we call it. And everything that all the, the rest API calls happen from there. And I only ever log into any of the actual nodes when I'm turning them off and I'm making sure that things are cleared out before I'm done with them.
1: And there's an important technique there being that because of the experience we have, a lot of us end up working with with large data sets, things that need high performance stateful volumes we can't easily do maintenance from our laptops. Our laptops are on the other side of the planet on a slow, crappy internet connection. residential internet connection. There's no way we can do maintenance on our services, on the data on our services from our laptops. There's data, bandwidth, lots, big. So being able to have that that maintenance node that is beside your infrastructure that you can SSH into that has a standard set of tools that you can easily recreate and version and see what changed to enable that that maintenance and debugging workflow that you need to maintain your application. Again, is you new know, SSH is not going away. Having a machine in your infrastructure that you actually log on to is an important piece of your
2: infrastructure. And and I think to your point that with the tooling getting as good as it's getting, that's helping being able to remove the the necessity to SSH into a server. And it's and it's getting to the point, I mean, to your point, with especially Kubernetes, yeah, you SSH into the node, then you gotta attach to the container, and then most of the time the things you may see have already been logged, or hopefully have already been logged. So it is definitely going to the wayside as long as and as we're seeing more and more tools embrace containerization or the paradigms that have brought Kubernetes and uh, the like to the forefront
0: yeah don't get me don't get us wrong. We really think that this is an amazing set of tools you can use to build amazing infrastructure very quickly and further automate all the things this is this is not a bad movement. We're just pragmatic and cautious about some of the the claimed benefits. Um, One of the things that always drives me a little bit crazy is there's a a whole bunch of folks who think that the best state possible is the smallest Docker image possible. Now, if you're running in Lambda or if you're running on something that, that cycles quickly, that you're bringing up hundreds of them or thousands of them a day, the load time is important, and so having a small Docker image is important because it's, there's less less to transfer of the network, there's less to unpack, there's less to open up, there's less to load. So it will make things faster. Less cost. But for example, and I keep coming back. I know, I know. But my Elasticsearch nodes, we restart them every couple of weeks. I don't really care if it takes two minutes versus one minute to 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 load the container, because all the other parts of the cluster take a lot longer than that. So that's not what's driving me and a lot of people think that the the best and the highest goal is to trim down the size of your Docker image to as small as possible so it's faster. But in doing so, they often remove things like bash, and then you can't well, debug. Well, what
1: that pattern leads to is everybody on your team is in, in this competition to make the smallest Docker image, and all of your Docker images are significantly different based on significantly different tool sets, different libc's, which introduces very subtle issues and bugs to your infrastructure, and if you have similar problems with two different applications, two different images, it's not the same solution or same root cause because the images are so different. There's definitely laudable reasons for wanting to keep your Docker image small, but there's also laudable reasons for being able to keep your Docker set, your Docker image standardized. Yeah, and I would
0: very much argue that having a common JDK or whatever runtime, Golang runtime, whatever it is you're using to deploy off of, is better to have that across all of your images that use it, rather than, I'm going to use Alpine here, I'm going to use an Ubuntu image here, I'm going to use that over there because I'm trying to minimize the footprint, the, the disk footprint. Having a having as many common layers as possible will save your storage space in your Docker registry or the hub or whatever because you're using common layers, and it means that there's a commonality in debugging and operation that you'll thank yourself at 3 in the morning.
2: Yeah, but... I love thanking myself at 3 in the morning. I love using Scratch with my Go projects.
0: I'm I'm not saying... That's pretty cool, I admit. I'm not saying there isn't a use for these things. I'm (laughs) just saying
2: you need to consider it. It's just so awesome to have, like, basically a a nothing, just nothing. (laughs) And I... And and especially with... with uh statically compiled binaries i think it's getting very close to at least in my opinion what i view a docker image being and that is uh almost like a tar gz of your of the required libraries or uh, uh dependencies required for your application and in, it's in the a case package. of a
1: sp- it's an rpm it's a right. deb from from the days of your Exactly, it's the packaging system scenario that actually was flexible enough to encompass everyone's need, easy enough that everyone could use it, and successful.
2: So you know, in the case of Go, I don't need, uh <laughs> I don't need a lot of those libraries. Yeah, Go so... is a super example of of
1: the tools getting better, and the fact that you can build a completely static Go library and run it as as init inside your container, yep. Yeah, your containers win; they're smallest can be, because there's only that go binary
2: in them. But I do agree. If you if if you are going to have uh, multiple languages, a common base image, even if you're not necessarily going to use some of those pieces in the image, again, if it's the only image you use, there's caching. There's um, deltas being used in that in that case, and you're actually safe. Yeah, the layers take care of your efficiency. Yep. and being able to have
1: that cross-team knowledge about how that container is put together and works is going to accelerate your your movement forward.
2: And and I'll admit, I am not a huge fan of of the big push to go into Alpine Linux. Um, I I'm not to offend anybody who really likes Alpine, but it's just it felt like we went from a community or from some of these distributions like using like a debian or ubuntu or centos where there's a lot of eyes on it you went from a very you know high trafficked project to something that's much smaller uh that there's a chance there may be more uh security vulnerabilities or something won't get released as quick now obviously using debian's example especially with their random number generator fiasco years back you know Bigger is not necessarily better. Oh, the security of Docker images gives me the willies.
1: <laughs> I love that precise technical term.
2: I would really love to to do more with like SC Linux and containers, for example. I feel like that's a great way to address that. I, I'll be honest, though, I'm a lot. I'm I'm like a lot of other people. Uh, se is in was it permissive, not enforcing. So, wait, you use se Linux? You, you still run Red Hat? Well, when I do run Red Hat. I don't often run Red
1: Hat, but when I do, I run SE Linux in permissive mode. <laughs> That's right.
2: I need that. I, I'm trying, right? <laughs> 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 One day I'll enable to, I'll make it more secure. What are our final thoughts? Immutable images are great, especially Kubernetes and, and the infrastructure that has uh, popped up around it has made it easier. Just take your time and figure out where you want your infrastructure to go and how you're going to uh, deploy it and handle the edge cases that uh, are not covered in the sexy and flashy blog posts. It's easy to uh, make immutable containers for a, a web app that contains no state. For other things, it's gotten easier. It's, it's
1: harder when you're doing 8 million
2: samples per second into your Prometheus nodes. Right. It's gotten easier, but there's still going to be some edge cases that you're going to need to think about. So. I
1: always go back to the fact that instead of being rash to jump to the latest fad in, in the operations and DevOps space, to be able to sit back and plan and think out what your system is going to look like what you want it to look like it's important to know that the whole concept of an immutable infrastructure came from the advent of these cloud platforms that we have they came from the availability of amazon the fact that you don't have to run a mysql database or postgres database anymore you have rds you buy that service so if the cloud provider is managing your state for you in S3 buckets and RDS, etc., then that reduces your need to manage state, which is how these container orchestration tools that we've come to know and love have come about and the theory around immutable infrastructure. But that has really led us to Kubernetes being the clear winner here being the open source cloud platform that we've all wanted not another proprietary API and the fact that kubernetes can offer stateful sets that actually work and are and are reasonably useful now which really cements how much for me kubernetes has has come forward and sort of won that battle of of what does the cloud look like
0: Please take the time to rate the show in Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave a comment on the website at operations.fm. Send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm, or use at operations.fm on Twitter. And that wraps it up for the 80th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf.
2: I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Single Brock